podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. We're doing it live, boss man. Welcome back to the podcast. Take off your snowshoes. It is 80 freaking degrees. We went from not having any power to contemplating turning on the air conditioning. What has happened here in Austin, Texas? You mean you take off my snowshoes that you you were wearing? Is <laughs> yeah, that what you mean? Because you. you stole my shoes. I stole everything from you. <laughs> I was totally unprepared for the snowvid, for the ice apocalypse. I don't know whether to make fun of it or to... Be sad about it, but for those of you just tuning in, Austin, Texas had a dramatic week. The grocery store aisles were bare. Many, many acquaintances, friends lost power, lost water. There are still many residents in Austin as we record this, as you listen to this, that do not have clean water in their homes. In fact, I helped deliver some water today. Everybody in Austin, Texas has sort of pitched in, whether it's via Facebook groups or Reddit or Twitter or their own private networks to help each other out. And I mean, so many crazy stories this week, Ian. We could fill up a whole episode with the drama on the ground. We spend so much time on the webs, Ian. Real life intervened this past week in Austin. Well, yeah, the internet was out for many, so uh, <laughs> and the power. So it was really hard to be online. Yeah, I lent my boots to you. Hope those were of use. Thank you. I lent my shower to many other people, <laughs> and uh, it was just a disaster area. It hasn't. This ice apocalypse hasn't happened in Austin, and it certainly didn't happen this severe for over forty years. So, to say that houses and people and infrastructure was not ready at all. And I mean, just to give a little image for those of you who are trying to figure out, like, what is uh, some ice and six inches of snow? Essentially, what happened is citywide pipes burst, and then statewide, the power grid went off. And so you have, like, massive flooding across the city. So you can't just, like, you know, turn off the water and then flip it back on. First off, all the pipes are frozen. Second off, all the pipes are broken. Third off, you know, the the power's off. And so people are freezing in their apartments, trying to figure out new places to go. And you go out on the road, and because there's no salt trucks, there's no infrastructure to deal with winter storms, you can't move anywhere. And so now you just have these dominoes going off and off and off. And then you have people with the 4x4s rushing out to the stores to get as much equipment as they can because they know they're going to be locked down. And I'll tell you this, Ian. Honestly, I don't think I'm exaggerating to say we were 24 to 48 hours away from a full social meltdown, whatever that means, some kind of panic in the streets. Um, it was serious. We were close there. And it just reminded me of how fragile so many of the systems in our society are. So many of the, you know, and it's, it, it holds true for business too. So many of the things that we think are just always going to be there. What's the example right now in business like Amazon S3 will always just be there. <laughs> someday it won't, boss man. <laughs> yeah, someday it won't. Someday uh, that magical power that just gets delivered to your house will not be there. And that was definitely the case in Austin. I do want to shout out because this is a company worth following, HEB, which is a local grocery store chain in Austin, Texas. 
HEB, they've made some headlines over the last couple of years. They are what you want your government to be. <laughs> They're prepared. They have a disaster plan in place. Yeah. They pay their employees really well. They make sure that people have food when they need food. The power went off in one of the HEBs and they just told everybody to walk out with all their food. Yeah. They were the first kind of company to come back online as this disaster was unfolding. Really interesting company to watch the way that they operate. Yeah, the way they do marketing, the way they treat their employees. And I'll say they're, they're one of my favorite on Reddit, you call it a post, like is uh, someone posted in the middle of Snowvid or Ice Apocalypse. There are three certainties in life, death, taxes, and HEB providing more leadership than your local government. <laughs> and it is such a cool business case study of a group who steps up and really provides a source of leadership in the community. That was comforting to see because we simply weren't seeing a whole lot from our elected officials. You didn't hear anything. It was interesting. You know, Ted Cruz famously uh, got on a plane to uh, Cancun <laughs> until the paparazzi <laughs> caught him. Mayor Adler, who's the mayor here in Austin, was on a, a news conference, a Zoom news conference, and he didn't have a sweater on. And like he had this, uh, <laughs> he had this like picture lighting going on in the background. Yeah. So I'm like, warm, bright light in the background, non essential lighting. Yeah. And somebody's like, hey, dude, get a clue, man. <laughs> like people haven't had power for like seven days. So look, I hate to gesture in crazy pathways, Ian, but you know, it hasn't been a great run for government on this continent. <laughs> What me and you should have done is been on that plane with Ted Cruz going to Cancun. Wouldn't that Gosh, have been Gosh, we nice? really should have. <laughs> I can't wait. I cannot wait. But anyway, let's get moving on to the meat of this week's episode. It's a conversation with someone who is an amazing contributor to our online forum, the DC. In fact, reading a thread there, Ian is what inspired us to invite her onto the program today. Or, of course, the DC stands for the Dynamite Circle. She has a really interesting trajectory that personally I related to as an entrepreneur. And specifically, she's pivoted several times, as we all do. So I started out with Eclectic Music. So I have a music school in Atlanta called Eclectic Music, and we do camps, classes, lessons for kids and adults. Even during COVID, we have about 300 students. Then I also have a small private school. It's a tiny homeschool group in Atlanta called the Little Middle School. And so that usually has between 25 and 27 students every year, and a handful of teachers. I've started an online school, but I've definitely kind of moved away from that. It has a handful of students. Then I've moved into the coaching and consulting for businesses. That is the amazing Casey Von Neumann. And as she says, she started as a teacher, pivoted into being a small business owner in the education space, and is now feeling out coaching, particularly in an area where we know, Ian, many business owners struggle building, keeping, and managing a team. We're going to go into all that on the show. And along the way, you'll hear me refer to some notes that Casey sent me ahead of the recording, which I appreciated. So let's get going. We started with Casey's first entrepreneurial play, which was probably Inner Jeans. So I do have a degree in music education but I was really doomed to be an entrepreneur from the get-go. Both my parents are really entrepreneurial. 
my dad was the balloon man in my hometown, where he would dress up as a clown and bring his guitar around with bouquets of balloons and sing to people for, you know, birthdays and anniversaries, graduations, that kind of stuff. So, you know, for years, I was the balloon man's daughter. Um, So I just saw that I just kind of saw always that you could just create something out of thin air. And that's really what I grew up with far more than the narrative of you go to college, you get a good job. That was something we never talked about. So even when I did have a job, it was always sort of jobs where you have a lot of autonomy, like being a server, being a teacher, where you have your own classroom. Then I started teaching music lessons, moved to a new city, started teaching music lessons. Which city was it? I moved to Atlanta from Maine, where I'd grown up. I spent a little time in California, you know, like we all do in our early 20s, kind of moved around. Why'd you move to Atlanta? That's a strange choice. You and John Mayer, huh? Yeah, well, two New Englanders trying to get out of the cold, I guess. It was an affordable city. It had good weather. I had some family there. What I found, too, was that it was a little bit like Austin is now, where it wasn't entrenched. Like, if I'd gone to Boston and started teaching music lessons, people would be like, oh, well, we take music lessons at this place that was founded in 1849. But Atlanta had nothing. Atlanta really didn't get going until air conditioning came along in, like, the 60s and 70s. So it was basically a new city. So I was able to just go and hustle, you know, put up the classic like flyers and coffee shops that had my website on them. And I got phone calls. So your game plan, you drove down to Atlanta, which is like a 15 hour drive or something. And you literally your game plan is like to teach music lessons to pay your rent. Yeah. Yeah. So stupid. And it totally worked. (laughs) (laughs) So how much are you charging for and what are you teaching? So I, I lived in this terrible apartment. It didn't even have central air conditioning. Tons of cockroaches. Classic. Of course, I fell in love with it because it's like, oh, my first apartment. And I taught piano lessons in the bedroom because that's where I had my rinky-dink digital piano. And then I taught guitar lessons in the living room. And then I would also go to people's houses. I was driving a really old Pontiac Bonneville at the time that (laughs) just barely made the trip down from Maine. Going to all these like million dollar houses with like these $50,000 cars and like I park my thing out front. It's like, I'll park down the block for you. But people really liked it. I was good at it. And I was good at building the relationships. And I was good at leveraging those relationships to get referrals and, and build it up. Was Atlanta a culture shock for you? In some ways, yeah, because I was not used to a culture in which people spent money on their kids. I grew up in a really small town in Maine. It was a tourist town. It was really dead during the winter. It was the kind of place where it's like, Mom, I want to play the guitar. Great. Play the guitar. Here's one. <laughs> you know, have fun. And it wasn't It wasn't like in Atlanta where it's like, let's get you, you know, hundreds of dollars a month worth of lessons and anything your heart desires, sweetie. The pressure that was on these kids was like nothing I'd ever seen. And the culture of spending money on kids and investing in them, investing in their development was like nothing I had seen as well. So I would say within five, six months, I was pretty much making it. I had enough work to, to get going. My standards were really low, <laughs> but, but I was able to pay my rent and make it work. When did it become about more than just paying for the rent for you? After a few years, and it wasn't intentional, but after a few years, I really did have quite a big referral base. So I was at this point where I had people coming to me and I was having to either turn them away or I would say, well, the summer's slow. I can take you for the summer. But then after that, 
I don't have any space in my schedule and I don't have anyone to refer you to. And they were like, okay. And I was like, that's strange. It's strange that they're not going to go look for someone else for another music teacher. So I thought, oh, maybe I can bring other teachers into this neighborhood and I can set them up with a place to teach. I can set them up with referrals. And so then I started to grow it beyond just me. I guess that was probably about five years after I got going. At the time, you're like, I'm just going to teach these kids guitar for the rest of my life. The actual teaching was something I really loved doing, but I was unsatisfied with it for the obvious reasons that most of us are dissatisfied with freelance gigs after a while. You're always having to hustle for the next gig. One person's decision to change something, you know, they've got soccer practice now. Well, now you're out that money. And I didn't like working through dinner. (laughs) Because you start working at 3 p.m. and then you work through till 8. And then, of course, like a lot of us, I read the 4-Hour Workweek and I was like, ah, I want that life. I want it. Describe to me like what specifically appealed to you about the 4-Hour Workweek. It was just the audacity of the 4-Hour Workweek that really appealed to me. It was something about just the way he questioned everything. The way that he was framing certain operational challenges that I had run into, like the endless email, and the way that he pushed back against expectations, the thing that I thought of, the thing that still sticks with me from that book that I quote a lot is the idea that you have to be willing to let little bad things happen in order to have the upside that you really want for yourself. That's a really powerful idea, especially like a lot of freelancers or craftspeople, and the art of letting little bad things happen is like antithetical to being a good craftsperson. I see a lot of folks struggle with that idea. So what did you do about it, though? Mostly, at first, I just kind of listened to the audiobook while I was walking around and just thought and let things percolate. And I had started to bring on people and I had started to look at different ways of creating leverage for myself. I didn't have the courage really to stop doing what I was doing. I didn't really know how to get out of it. And even when I started my second business, which came a few years later, it was still something that had me very tied down. Did you like start renting a location and doing lessons at a at a leased location or how did it work? Yeah, we did. We rented First one, then a year later, we rented another, and then another. We're back down to two-ish right now, but yeah, I kind of let it grow. At this time, are you doing lessons anymore, or are you just... I was. I was still teaching a bunch of lessons on top of being the administrator. And were you making good money from this business? No. No, Dan. No, I was not. (laughs) (laughs) Why not? Because I didn't, that was not the first thing that I started with, and that was a fatal mistake. So instead of thinking about, here's how I get paid, but while it's still on paper, and you know, really getting that proof of concept down while it's still on paper, the way that you guys talk about these ideas every single week, it was like, here's this thing that people want, and here's this thing that I can offer, and I left out that part about really making sure that I get paid for it and really valuing what I was bringing. In fact, I tended to undervalue what I was bringing because I kind of assumed because it was easy for me, oh, everybody can do this. Everybody can go out and find business. Everybody can get repeat business because they're good at what they're doing. Everybody can go out and find the place to 
teach and the materials to use and all that stuff. And it turns out, no, that was actually a skill set that I had developed and that was valuable, but I just did not set it up so that I actually paid myself for that. It is powerful once you get like introduced to the entrepreneurial skill set, you realize that like it's not as widespread, like just pulling together a profitable system on top of like a very common thing like music education or whatever isn't, it's not that common actually. Like most people doing commerce like aren't figuring out economics at scale or even at like just a small medium scale. Right, right. And to be honest, I really learned how to do that. And I learned how to think that way listening to this podcast because I wasn't having that conversation with people that I knew in my day-to-day life. So I'm just reading. I started listening to the show in 2014. I was an administrator and teacher at two different schools that I had founded and didn't know how to escape. (laughs) And then you said it took until 2017, so three years for you to be able to leave the business for one month. So what were the things that were tying you to the business and how did you begin to extract yourself? I guess I had a little bit of that hero complex that some of us have, where it's like, this is the thing that I made, therefore I have the unique genius that keeps it running, nobody else can do it but me. And it wasn't until I was willing to put that ego aside a little bit and invite other people to be part of it, that there was some room for me to have some a little space and freedom to do the next thing or or to just not work 14 hours a day. It's like that lone wolf genius complex is like really good for years like one through two or whatever. And then it really sucks the year three through whatever. Right. There's this weird shift that we have to make because like for the first couple years where you're just hustling and you're just doing everything because it's easier to just pay yourself to do it. It makes more sense to pay yourself to do it. And because no one else is willing to do it, right? (laughs) No, and you can't afford to have somebody do it. Like, so you're just like, okay, I'm going to learn how to do all these things. That's how you talk yourself up is like, yes, I can do this. Yes, I can figure this out. And then at a certain point, you have to pivot and you have to say, I'm not the best person to do this. Nope, I'm not the best person to do this. And you have to systematically hand everything off. That's a really big mindset shift that I had to get through. So what happened? Well, The vision for what could be was really important. And so I came across the TMBA in 2014. Believe it or not, it wasn't even through the podcast. It was through the blog. And that was like, oh, okay, these people are doing it. And you had such credibility with me because because you and Ian weren't like the typical online business thing where you're like teaching people how to make money by teaching people how to make money, by teaching people how to make money, and on and on. It's because we're not smart enough for that stuff. (laughs) (laughs) But the fact that you actually, like, these guys are living in Bali with a manufacturing business. Like, it it just, it blew my mind. And, And I loved that that was the sort of oblique way that you all implemented the four hour work week and, and took those ideas and, and ran with them. And so even though I'm the only one I know in my world who wants this, there are other people out there who want this, who have figured out how to do it. It's real. It's not just this fantasy. And so getting into listening and then eventually becoming a member of the DC, like finally meeting people face to face who had these types of businesses and, and had designed their businesses, not just that they would, were able to escape them, but with the intent of having that 
location freedom and that time freedom, that really spoke to me. So once I could see it happening and see like, oh, yeah, it's no big deal. This is just this is just the business that I started, you know, that winter in Chiang Mai. It's like, oh, OK, like that's how to do it. OK. And then it, it was a lot easier for me to see that path for myself. That's a huge deal. And like we talk about like validation in the startup world, you know, like validation, it's not as available as you think, even in successful businesses. It's not always the case that people are just like chucking money at you from day one. And and I can remember in multiple businesses I was starting where I was getting the opposite of validation from intelligent peers sometimes too. And like that's you feel like you're crazy sometimes when you're doing some of this stuff. I think it's like we're just worth underlining that even things that are on the path of great success, like you can feel a lot of like negative feedback while you're doing it. Even if it's not like overt negative feedback, it's just people like, oh, they don't buy it. They don't see it. They don't, they kind of disapprove of it. Not a big deal, but like just that kind of stuff wears on you when you're not getting positive. People aren't dumping money, like rolling up the Brinks truck into your bank account. That's a real thing. Yeah. You got to know who's safe to talk to. You know, my dad, has said something to me a long time ago that stuck with me and said, you don't, you don't give everyone your good stuff. Really, there's a level of trust there that not everybody gets to be privy to. And that doesn't mean that you can't be real with people or that you try to project this facade of invincibility or something. But it just means that like, for those things that are kind of the fragile, tender shoots of like, I'm thinking about doing this, or I'm thinking about starting a business that's called this, it's like, be very careful who you share that stuff with. And it doesn't maybe go out to the real world or to everybody until it's good and ready until you don't actually care what people think about it. I'm feeling a little bit of that right now. Like that's a that's a real thing in business. I just want to underline that that idea. Right. At Christmas, it's like, so what are you doing again? What's what's your business again? What are you doing now? For years. Because for- <laughs> <laughs> it's not the typical thing. And so for me... That was an identity, like people like, cool, you're still teaching music. It's like, well, uh, the answer to that is complicated. So it's like, yeah, I'm just going to smile and nod. Like what? You go to the dentist and they ask your occupation. I don't know what to put for that anymore. If you run a growing seven or eight figure remote company, your next productive team member could be just one simple phone call away. Check it out. I'm running an ad for our own stuff. How cool. This week's sponsor is our very own done-for-you recruiting service for remote companies, courtesy of dynamitejobs.com. You can learn more at dynamitejobs.com slash remote dash recruiting or just Google it up. Our recruiting services are designed to save weeks or even months of your own effort in the hiring process and you know, avoid lost opportunities of you or your team member, your HR staff focusing on the job board grind and the hiring hustle instead of building a better business. Our process starts with a simple, free, no obligation phone call with one of our senior recruiters and often the boss man himself. We'll get a sense for your company, your mission, the candidates you're seeking. We then go out and execute the entire job search on your behalf. That includes marketing to our database as well as taking a lot of the budget from the service fee and going out and proactively marketing your job to third-party sites, services, communities, and so on to ensure you get the best candidates for each individual job. Again, we know how to do all this stuff. From there, it gets even more complicated. We perform all the filtering, the interviews, and the assessments on your behalf. So basically, we're delivering you qualified candidates who are interested in your position, who understand your needs, and are looking to have that final conversation with you about 
you know, whether or not it's a good fit. So obviously hiring can be a total pain in the butt, but the team at Dynamite Jobs does this stuff every day. We understand remote first businesses and have the systems and people in place do the job quick and reliably on your behalf. And what's best is we keep it simple and charge a flat fee per hire. So with our new done-for-you recruiting services, you can stay focused or your team focused on what you guys do best, and we'll take care of the hiring on your behalf. To learn more, head on over to dynamitejobs.com slash remote dash recruiting, schedule a call, or drop us an email, team at dynamitejobs.com. Okay, so the next phase now is like, you're starting to identify more as a founder, and it sounds like you start to realize that you need to diversify your income streams. You mentioned some problems you've had with the school business. How did you begin to address your concern about that primary business? Yeah, so maybe I was like reading too much Taylor Pearson or something, but I really started to get this <laughs> feeling that... So Taylor Pearson writes a wonderful blog essentially about the fragility of the economy or you know, any business, basically. Right. So I didn't know when there was going to be a black swan type event. And so there I was, it was eh, 2018-ish. And I was like, you know, I've got all my eggs in one basket here. Everything that I'm doing, even though technically it's two businesses, it's all involving education and kids and families in one metropolitan area in the United States. And so imagine if something were to happen to disrupt that economy in some way, what would happen? And so I... <laughs> this is little, like a clear phase of entrepreneurship is paranoia. Yeah. Little did I know it was completely well-founded. <laughs> Who could have known, right? Probably Taylor. But <laughs> it, was, it was this moment where I was like, I've got to figure out what the next thing is that I'm going to do. I've got to be moving away a little bit from this. So I just kind of thought about Another book that's been a real influence on me is Cal Newport, So Good They Can't Ignore You, where he really talks about this idea of leveraging your career capital. You don't make this flying leap like I'm going to quit everything and jump over here. I'm going to take what I've learned so far and then use that to make my next pivot. So the next obvious step was going to be an online school where I was going to work with families from all over, which I did. Didn't know that COVID was also going to disrupt that. So I got that started. Then I started getting into business coaching, which was a leap for me. So I've been doing a lot of that. And so by the time a year or so had gone by, I was in a pretty good position where I was starting to diversify. Yeah, it seems so obvious to start an online school. Was that a bigger challenge than you suspected? I really wanted to take a boutique approach to it. And ironically, when everything went online then it actually set back the enterprise because part of what I was trying to assert was that school doesn't have to take all day. Online school can be a lot of offline experiences. You can have time for your family. You can have time to volunteer in the community and do all of these fun activities. And I was just going to be a smaller part of that. So this isn't a music school. This is the middle school. Right. This is more math, science, everything. I came up against a couple challenges. The first is, is COVID, basically, because then online school meant something different to everybody. Like, everybody went, online school, this is horrible. But it's like, well, no, it's just they're doing it wrong. It doesn't have to be this terrible. And then the second piece was a values conflict that I really wanted to sort of create this bespoke experience for people. But then I realized that, like, I had come up against a values conflict where I needed to figure out 
what do I stand for with this? And so I think it's still something that I want to invest in. But right now, the education space and with COVID and everything, my school's have been doing okay, but I just want to stabilize those things. And, and then I'm working on some other projects more in the B2B space where there's a little more, a little more leverage, a little more ROI. And then I feel like I can pivot back to the education stuff and make a bigger contribution. So rather than seizing on the online education business opportunity, Casey's now starting a new business drawing on her experience both creating businesses and fulfilling teams. Something I know a lot of us struggle with. Well, I love talking about this stuff because I feel like I've, I'm a reformed bad boss. Like a lot of us, I started with the best of intentions and I had this vision. And of course, I wanted to be a place where people wanted to come to work and I wanted to collaborate and I wanted to give people freedom. But I didn't know how to see things from the perspective of my employees. So there was a lot of stuff that I just thought, this is the right way to do it. And didn't realize that I had an identity and I had a set of values that I just wasn't expressing. And so I would just expect my employees to be able to read my mind about specific things, but also the sort of general overall way that we wanted things to feel. I got involved in uh, Seth Godin's Akimbo workshops. I got into coaching there and it's a lot of it is around people being stuck. You know, they have a vision for a thing that they want to create, but they don't really know how to move it forward. They don't know how to organize all the pieces and parts. And they're like, you know, stuck on like, what do I call it? And what's my URL and my logo? And, and, and I'm really having the job of helping them figure out how to take action. As you guys talk about so often, it's like really though, you just find someone who's willing to pay you money and solve a problem for them. And then you do it again and you do it again. And then you will figure out, you will figure out where you fit. You will figure out who it's for. You will figure out the answers to all of those big high level questions, maybe two years in, three years in, six months in maybe, but. Follow the money. Yeah. You don't have to start with like the lofty stuff. You can start with like the scrappy stuff and just taking the action, moving it forward. So are people getting stuck because they've got head trash or are they getting stuck because they don't really understand what entrepreneurship is or where's the sticking point that you're seeing? I think some of it's head trash. And I think a lot of it too, is that people have more than one idea and they get stuck in this sort of solopreneur mindset where like, and whoever invented that word, I don't, I really don't know about that word because it's like, if your business is not you. And so if you have a business that you want to not be you, if you don't want to be a freelancer, then you can decide to be an entrepreneur. But like, let's not conflate the two. They're not the same. Not that I have any passionate feelings on this. I'm like <laughs> up on my soapbox here, but. We'll describe that a little further. What's the problem with being a solopreneur? If you get stuck in this sort of, this fantasy of the solopreneur, like hashtag girl boss kind of thing, where you, you believe that, your business is meant to fulfill this like personal mission for you and that you your identity like you set up your URL it's your name and your identity is wrapped up in this business so then your choice about which colors to use in your logo becomes a choice about your own identity and i think that that's that's a place where a lot of people fail and where people get stuck because they have to be able to let go of the business as an entity and recognize that it is a thing that is separate from them 
And it is meant to make money, it is meant to fulfill a specific purpose, but that purpose is not necessarily your own personal fulfillment. So just figure out why you're doing it. If you're doing it to make money, figure out how to make it make money. If you want it to be this personally fulfilling thing, let go of the idea that it needs to make you money. So people get all twisted up. So sometimes... Wow. (laughs) People are coming with their pitchforks. Your business, if your intention is for it to fulfill you, is going to make it problematic for you to both run a business and be fulfilled. Yeah, I think that that's true. I'm not saying you can't be fulfilled through a business, but just know which thing that you're prioritizing in the moment. You can't prioritize both on day one. Yep, I agree. There was a version of what you're saying that kind of motivated my comment, which is I notice a lot of people, they're trying to solve their own problems. In other words, like instead of truly doing the thing that entrepreneurs do, which is, for example, collect money to solve problems. It's just that simple. And once you have the skill, it's cool too, because then you feel like I feel insulated from ever having to like do things I don't really want to do again because it's like there's a lot of ways to collect money to solve problems. So, you know, that sense in my early twenties I had of like being so, so stuck. There is this conflation. Entrepreneurship has become like a consumable. It's become like a Instagram lifestyle or whatever that you can purchase and participate in and it'll solve for things like meaning. That's a dangerous game to play. Right, exactly. And to your point earlier, like being paid to solve problems is great. I also had to figure out the line between like the done for you, done with you versus DIY, like where I wanted to be and where my sweet spot is in that. It turns out that strategy is is my passion. I'm not interested in starting an agency to actually do the execution. But I also do love collaborating with people and collaborating with business owners to kind of show them the ropes. Looking at a couple different places, that first scary place where maybe you've hired the one VA and you know that you need, like you've automated as much as you possibly can and it's not fixing the problem anymore. So many of us are really good at the hustle. So we've got the sales and marketing engine in place. So then how do you go from that really busy thing where you're like the headline cook calling all the orders in the kitchen and like you need someone to serve the food, but how do you train that person? How do you hire that person? Like, how do you take the time out to hire that person? You guys are doing a really good job of solving that particular problem, which I think is really needed in the marketplace with Dynamite Jobs. You can't remember what it was like to be an employee. So now you've hired this person. It's like, oh, good. This is on fire. Here, take it. And I've been in that position so many times where it's like, I don't even know how to onboard this person because I just don't even have time to slow down. Like we're just running, running. And that's just a recipe for unfulfillment for you, for the person who you've hired. Like they, they're not going to be able to perform at the level that they are capable of under those conditions. And what they want is to do a good job. Like their f- job fulfillment doesn't come the same way that ours does. An employee has a different set of metrics most of the time. And if it's like, cool, you're here, so now I'm going to ignore you so I can do my job, like that's a lonely place to be for that person. I also think like a lot of folks who listen to the show traditionally might have like balked at the concept of management because they believe it's primarily about task management and what they want to do is be builders. So they then 
say like, okay, and every time I'm explaining like my SEO strategy to you is like a moment I'm not doing one myself or whatever. But the reality is, is like, I don't think good management is mostly about walking through tasks with people. No, like the people listening to this podcast, if they are builders of businesses, they're investing time right this minute in their professional skills. And there are so many things that are going to be relevant to the people on their teams that they can pass along in various ways. It might not be the highest of high level strategy, but there's a lot of stuff like the productivity things that we invest in and the books on leadership that we might read or the books on like on just thinking big that we get into. And I think for a lot of people, they're, they're assuming maybe that their employees are not interested in that, are not going to be on board with that, or that it's not worth it to share those resources or to give them that information. And I have found that it absolutely is. Maybe not with every single person, but there's a lot of people that I've worked with who are really hungry for the growth. They're hungry to learn more. If I'm leveling up, how does that create space for them? I have conversations with people on my team that are every bit as fun and fulfilling as the kinds of conversations I have with other entrepreneurs. So it's really ironic that I felt so lonely for so long, thinking that I you know, didn't have anybody to talk business with, when actually the people on my team could have been those people and are those people now. If you mentor your people, then that will come back for you. And it isn't this thing that you have to do all these 360 interviews and spend all of this time in a conference room building your culture. It's something that you can do day by day, but it's really just about investing in the people that you're working with and understanding that the people who come work for you as an entrepreneur don't necessarily have the same needs. Like, I don't want to have a boss. I'm a terrible employee. I'm not good at having a boss, but somebody else who's working for me really wants to hear that they did a good job and they really want an opportunity for growth. And it's my job to provide that for them. I have one employee in particular who's amazing. Her name is Jen. And she said to me, I didn't realize this, but I only work at a company for two years because after two years, I outgrow the position. There's no room for growth. I get bored. I move on. And now she's been in my company for three years. And she attributes that directly to the fact that she has these opportunities for growth. She has direct mentorship, and I've invested a lot in her skills, her ability to be productive. A lot of the things that I've learned, I pass that on directly to her. But then when I talk to another entrepreneur, it's like, oh, cool. I'd like to have that too. Yeah, you've got really great people. I'd hire those people. It's like, yes, they are amazing people, and I've invested a lot in them. It is financially rewarding, potentially. That's the hard part for the entrepreneur. It's kind of your job to find the margin. Like if you can find a highly profitable cash flow, then you can typically hire people who have already managed those sorts of cash flows in the past. And so then the conversation tends to be purely about values and they're teaching you stuff. Whereas if your cash flow is more meager or if you're in an earlier stage of business, typically you're bringing in people, unless you have startup funds or some other sort of source of uh, funding, you're typically bringing in people with low levels of experience managing those sorts of cash flows. And that's really challenging. I think that's like a lot of times that's what people are essentially complaining about is the fact that like, it's hard enough to have the values conversation. Now we're also having the SOP conversation. And now I'm also, you know, just basically training them on everything. And often the reason for that is you're just not making enough margin. Yeah, I think there's a tendency that I know that I had where I'm like the Grinch 
with handing everything to his little dog, like, here, you're going to pull this sleigh. And the reality is, like, just because I, as the entrepreneur, was willing to wear a million hats and learn how to do a million different things, like, whoever I hire, I need to give them a much more circumscribed and defined role. But I have found that I can hire someone with a relatively low level of experience who is still that A player, and they're a quick learner, they're excited for growth, and they are receptive to even learning some skills that aren't in the domain that they may have specialized in up to this point. I think that there are ways to make the most of what somebody's capabilities are by not trying to hand everything off to that one person and not giving them more responsibility than they can handle. Do you have a couple of quick tips? Like how do you manage your team that you think is superior to what you're seeing out there in client land? Any just like small things that people can sink their teeth into that, that you do that really works? Yeah, I think there's a really heavy emphasis that we have on process and really learning some best practices, not in the spirit of, I want to monitor you and make sure that you're like, you know, ringing the most out of every hour, but so that you can find more satisfaction in your work. So we teach people exactly how to process their email and how to organize their tasks, how to organize their calendar, just huge, you know, we're GTD nerds. That's, you know, David Allen's getting things done. I read that book three times to try to figure out what the heck he was talking about. But I don't expect my team to. So it's like, I'm going to train them, but they're going to train their teams. And then deliberately scheduling conversations that are just for the purpose of mentorship. And so that would be me with all of the people who are directly reporting to me. And then also the people who are directly reporting to each of my leaders have those conversations too, that that's just part of the culture that we've set up where it's like, hey, we've got this hour, however often, once a week or, or whatever, where it's like, this is just for you. It's just coaching, like exactly the way that I would do with a client. It's just that the domain is slightly different because I'm talking to an employee, but it's still about like what's working for you, what's not working for you. You think about the levers there, like too, if you choose like between business partners and like key employees, say that's four hours a week. So like, you know, you schedule, you have five direct contacts, you know, you speak with four of them every week and you rotate so you're talking about like one day, half your day, and like think about the lever that that is. Everybody there is working six to eight hours a day. That's a huge lever. I love that Steve Jobs thing. It's like, well, how do you you know manage ten thousand employees or whatever? It's like I only talk to five of them. So this like investment, it matters. Like the quality of those interactions matters because it's always happening, regardless of whether you acknowledge it or not. You're you're speaking with five key people in your business every week, regardless. So it's like if you can up-level the quality of the people you're talking to and the conversations, you can experience some extraordinary levers. Right, exactly. I think that the return on investing in your own skills of leadership is often worth it. And some people who are in like a front-facing business, where maybe you're working in the wellness industry or something, like you want the people who are working in your business to get the good stuff that you're giving to your clients. There's got to be this harmony with the culture that the people who are working for you are representing the brand that you're outwardly saying that you believe in. I'm like feeling how difficult that is to that is initial frustrations of like getting the wrong people and not knowing what's going wrong or why isn't it going as well as when I was just doing it by myself. But like there's all there's like this middle ground that's like it's messy for most of us. 
And who do you ask for help with that? That's where I want to step into is being able to be a source of support that's scaled appropriately to where the business is. That you're not going to hire some management consultant who's going to come do 360 interviews with everybody and, and sit them all down at a big, giant conference table. Also, can you do that? Really, can you use improving the operations as the mechanism for kind of finding the, the places where things are breaking down? You've quoted like a lot of concepts from the TMBA catalog that were contributed by guests over the years. I want to ask you a difficult question and ask you to make a couple contributions yourself. What would you like to emphasize in the entrepreneurial catalog, so to speak, for, and that you would encourage people to think about a little bit more? It's really important to build in the beginning the kind of business that you want to have. And so before we talked about this choice between the fulfillment and the money, there's a piece that connects those, which is like, what do you want to be doing in the day-to-day? And is this headed in the direction that you want it to go? When I think about my first business, the music school, that really didn't pass the test because I didn't build in the financial margin to be able to make choices, to be able to market appropriately, to be able to develop the team appropriately. It kind of got stuck. So knowing what I know now, while I still don't think we have to go like, cool, we're, now we're going to spend 15 grand on a website and logo, I do think that before I even start, I want to say, what are the non-negotiables? Like, how much time am I going to devote to this? What am I looking for for an outcome? And if I can't see a reasonable plan of like, cool, I'm willing to do this work every single day to get here based on the plan, then it's okay to walk away from that. I can rip pivot jam in some other space. I don't have to be attached to this particular one. There's always going to be another idea. If you listen to this podcast long enough, you will hear the free ideas being doled out. So I think that that's a really important one for me is like, make sure you're building a business that you actually want to be part of at every stage of the game. Big shout out to Casey for dropping by the show. You can follow her on her everyday and great blog, wearerulerless.com. What an incredible week. Thanks for hanging in there with us last week. And this week, me and the boss man, you know, we're still dusting off those winter boots. It's just wonderful to be with you during these crazy times bound to get crazier. Anyway, All that said, we will be back next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thank you.